you choir while you find uh, your passage in Philippians chapter 2 uh, this morning. Just want to say we're looking forward to our children uh, tonight uh, sharing with us. Next Sunday night and Monday night will be the adult uh, cantata. And just want to remind you we're going to do something uh, this year we've never done before, and that is on Christmas Eve night, which is a Sunday night, the 24th. We're going to have a, a very special service in which we'll have um, some singing, a very brief message, and then we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper our families will be participating in this. Hopefully, as families, there will really be no nursery that night. We do want you to come as families, though, and just enjoy that brief service of worship in the Lord on Christmas Eve night together. I also want to thank you for your prayers and concern for my wife, uh, who had surgery this week, had a knee replacement on Monday, and just appreciate your prayers and concern, and she's uh, recovering slowly. Uh, at home. Uh, the, the greater miracle is not only that the, that the surgery went well, but that uh, she survived me being her nurse all week. And uh, so uh, I wasn't trained in this, but uh, well, we're getting through it. Father, bless now your word, and God, just uh, teach us this morning, uh, Lord, more about you. And draw our hearts and our minds towards you, Lord, to just uh, see that you are indeed worthy of our worship and God that it is a right to praise you and thank you and bow before you and Lord we pray that uh, you would open our eyes more fully today to your majesty and your greatness expressed in your humility we pray this in Jesus name amen astronauts who have actually traveled into space are few in number comparatively after all, humans have only been able to venture into space now for around 60 years, and still these trips are sporadic and temporary. We can only get the views that they see through pictures or video, and that will never do it justice. You'd have to actually be out there, be there, to see the majesty of it through their eyes to appreciate fully what they see. While many different things have been said by astronauts going up into space, things such as that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, uttered by Neil Armstrong when he was the first man to step onto the moon, perhaps no words have been more appropriate or more beautiful than the words of astronaut Alan Shepard talking about his time on the moon's surface during the Apollo 14 mission in 1971 when he said this he said quote when I first looked back at the earth standing on the moon I cried during this Christmas season I'm sharing three messages with you about the events of Christmas in which I'm hoping to help us learn something more or more deeply about our God as we consider how the angels viewed the unfolding drama of the gospel over the course of human history I've entitled this brief series angelic observations. This is an angle that uh, I had never really thought about until I was praying about what to preach and what to prepare for this month. But as I was doing so, this was impressed upon my heart to, to investigate this, and I was overwhelmed with what the angels witnessed about the nature and heart of God in the acts of redemption for us. And I felt like Alan Shepard when he looked back at the earth and cried. Last week, we read from Scripture that the matter of the gospel is such a glorious thing that angels long to peer or look into it closely. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll go in some different places, but back just to kind of recap a little bit from last week. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, 
Peter writes and says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And Peter writes and says even angels long to look into these things. They long to peer into these things. You can go back and get that first message. As we said last week, while some of the original angels rebelled against God between the time of their creation and Genesis 1:28, when God declared all things good, all the creation good, that included the angels, something happened in the angelic realm between Genesis 1:28 and Genesis 3 verse 1 where we see Satan, the adversary, a fallen angel, come to tempt Adam and Eve and to lead mankind to take that step of disobedience and to lead us into the fall. And so Satan and those who followed him, we now know them as the demons, which means fallen angels. They're involved in the brokenness of this world. But the majority of the angels who were created by God, all beings who will live eternally, they remain faithful. And so these good angels have been witnesses these angels created by God, witnesses to an unfolding plan of God to save humanity. God did not choose to save the fallen angels. But God has chosen to save, as the video showed in the beginning of the service, a people unto himself out of every tribe and tongue. And so these angels have witnessed this. And so in the first message, through their eyes, we saw that as they observed God acting through time, from the announcement in the garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15, God gives a promise that there's going to be a seed from the woman, a descendant from the woman who will crush Satan's head, even though Satan bruises his heel, pointing to the crucifixion. From the time of that announcement that a Savior is coming, to the time when the angel spoke to Mary about Jesus, and Jesus was born, and the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's disposition, as we saw last week, is to save. I don't know what you think about God. God's image gets distorted in our culture. But centrally, the heart of this God, going all the way back to when we messed up in the garden, is that he has a desire to save. And the angels witnessed that. They witnessed the unfolding of how God was going to do that through the Old Testament. He wants to save us, not destroy us. His justice must be fulfilled in the coming judgment, but He provided a way for us to be saved by taking that judgment, that wrath, into Himself. And that is how Jesus Christ can save us from our sins. And God wants to save. His desire is that no one should perish. Now, I don't know where you are in your life today, how badly you may feel you've messed up, as we said last week, but God's disposition towards you is to save you. That's what he wants to do for all of us in our lives. Today, I want us to learn with the angels something else about God, and this takes us into the realm of the heart of God, the disposition of God, and his desire to relate to us, not just to save us, but to relate to us. And to observe this, I invite you again to look to that passage in Philippians chapter 2 that we read in the beginning of the service. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you have them open to that passage. This passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, has had more ink spilled over it by scholars discussing it than 
probably any other passage in the New Testament. I don't wish to get into those discussions. They deal with things like, is this an ancient hymn that Paul incorporated into the letter? Or is this original with Paul? Does it have the form of a hymn or a poem? And so different scholars kind of lay it out. It has this type of a structure, others this type of a structure. Exciting things like that. Those are the types of things that give biblical scholars goosebumps, but I, I don't want us to get into that today. It's not pertinent for us at the moment here to any great degree. What I want us to see is that certainly the passage takes us from the time before the incarnation when the Son and the Spirit and the Father lived in glory unabated to the time the Son of God took on human flesh and came to redeem us in the person of Jesus Christ. And through his death and his exaltation and the ultimate declaration that all created things will bow to him as Lord, the angels have been witnessing this. Angels and all of us are included in the group who will bow. All will bow to Jesus, either saved or lost, angel or human. But angels have been witnesses to all of this that we see in Philippians chapter 2 leading up to this. They are witnesses to this thing here where it says that who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. The angels witnessed the eternal Son of God do this. They've been witnesses to it to the time that he came, to the time that he lived and died, and then they will all be witnesses with us to that time when we bow before Jesus. All creation bows before him. And so... What they have seen in this is enough to silence an angel in hushed reverence. And I just want to take a couple of moments to kind of observe it with you today in two points I want us to see about what the angels teach us here. First of all, when we read the angels being witnesses or read about them being witnesses to all of this, they're in existence from the time of creation in Genesis. They've witnessed this all along, watching this God's desire to save. They've also, since they've been created, they've been witnesses to the glory of God. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but you can go back to Psalm 148 as we looked at last week, verses 2 through 5, where it talks about the angels were created all at once, along with everything else in creation. There are different classes of angels, such as cherubs, seraphs, archangels, Michael the archangel. The word angel means messenger. And we often see them in relationship to humans communicating direction from God or delivering a message from God as when they appeared to the shepherds in the Christmas story or they appeared to Mary. As we notice, some of them fell into sin and rebellion. They were dislodged from permanent residence in the presence of God. They now seek to attack God's creation and thwart the work of God in the world. But the vast host of angels, as we said, are faithful servants of the living God. And one thing that they have been witnessing since creation, in a way that we cannot, we cannot yet, is the glory and the majesty of God as the trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Angels know what it is to live in the presence of God in all of His power and the luminance of His majesty. Such brightness does this God have in His glory that the sun in its brightness pales in comparison. You remember in Revelation chapter 21 where the Bible is talking about the new heaven and the new earth that will 
arrive someday. It says in Revelation 21-23 about the city that New Jerusalem does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb that is Jesus is its lamp. Or over in the next chapter, 22 verse 5 of Revelation, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We see throughout the Bible these angels who lived in that presence of this glorious God, we see them caught up in the praise of God and His glory, for there's no one greater than God. And that is what was pulled forth from them, from them rightly so, from these creatures in the presence of this glorious Creator. I mean, one passage that captures this so well for us in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called to be a prophet, if you would look there. And there is this uh, vision that he has. And you, he says in Isaiah chapter 6, he says in verse 1, In the king, year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And then he mentions some of the ranks of these angels. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. These beings lived in that presence. And they cried out to one another, Holy to the third degree. This God is superlative. And they're always crying out to God. It just is pulled forth from them because God is so majestic, so glorious, so beautiful, so powerful. And so these angels have seen this one great God who exists in a way that goes beyond our ability to comprehend it fully. He exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person fully God. Each person equally glorious. Each person perfectly in harmony and unity with the other so that we can speak of one God, three persons. And since their creation, the angels have been witnesses to a power and a majesty that would consume us if it was manifested to us in this earthly state. There's really no way I can illustrate this. It's like the astronauts. We cannot really see it unless we're looking through their eyes. We're hearing a description here. But maybe we can think about it in this way. You know, you and I have the sun, the literal physical sun out there that uh, we stay out in it very long. It burns our skin, right? It's very hot. It is very powerful. If things get near it, they are consumed. It is very large. But did you know that our sun is, is a very, very small, small star in comparison? You know, the largest sun that has been found so far, the largest star, is Uy Scuti. There is the picture of how it would look a little bit in comparison to our sun. See the little dot? That's our sun in comparison to that star has a radius 1,700 times that of our sun. It is 9,500 light years away. It's the largest known star. It is 30 times the mass of our sun. It's huge. We can't even get our minds around it. We are people who stand in, in awe of the sun that we see in its glory. But it pales into significance in relationship to this largest star 
And you and I can stand here and talk about our Lord and our God, and we can marvel at His majesty and His glory, but these angels stand in the presence of the one who is great, far beyond what we can imagine. They've witnessed His glory all down through time, and so they worship, and they praise Him. They adore Him. They have seen Him in His character, and they marvel. Now, in this passage, Paul makes the point that this person whose birth we are celebrating this month, Jesus, that He existed as the Son for all of eternity, equal with the Father before He took on human flesh, before He took up humanity into His person, now being Jesus the God-man. William Barclay explains this for us about as well as anyone regarding verse 6. If you would turn back to Philippians chapter 2. I I don't often dig into the grammar with you very much from the pulpit, but I do here for the moment want you to look at this with me to think about this baby we're focusing on this month, what he was like when he was the son in relationship to the Trinity. He's still in relationship to the Trinity. He's the second person of the Trinity. But before he took on human flesh, what does the Bible say about him? Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. When you look at verse 6, Barclay says two words are most carefully chosen to show the unchangeable Godhead of Jesus Christ. The word translated being, who being in very nature God, is the word who parkine. And it's not the common Greek word for being. It describes the very essence of a person that cannot be changed. And so in every circumstance, the eternal Son of God is essentially an unalterably God. He goes on to say that this eternal Son of God, notice who being in very nature God, or in the very form of God, he goes on to use another word here in the Greek language. There were two words for form. One was the word morphe, the other is the word schema. Schema is related to the outward form that can change. Morphe is dealing with the the form, the inner form, the essential form that never changes. That's the word that is used here by Paul. And so the morphe of any human being is humanity. You and I are part of humanity, and nothing will ever change that. Or if we think about the uh, flowers, such as... uh, you know, daffodils and tulips, they may change their schema, the outward form, but at their, at their core morphe, they're always flowers. And the point here that he is making is that, as John makes, that from all of eternity in John 1, the Son was also God, as much as God the Father. His form has never changed. He's always been God Almighty. And so before we get to Jesus in the, in, the, in the manger, we have the majestic, eternal Son of God, who is God as much as God the Father, God as much as God the Holy Spirit. And so he exists in this way. So C.B. Williams translates this, though he was existing in the nature of God, he did not think his being on an equality with God a thing to be selfishly grasped. That's what the angels have been witnessing since they were created in Genesis chapter 1. They have watched the fall. They've watched the plan to redeem. They've watched all of this. And they've seen this glorious God, this Trinity, that we cannot fully even grasp today. But they have seen Him. And they've worshipped Him. And they've obeyed Him completely because He was their Creator. 
And they have seen their Creator in a way that you and I have not seen our Creator. Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ is the Creator of all things. And so they lived in the presence of Him, their Creator. He had no rivals. And it was right to worship continually this perfect, beautiful, glorious, good being who is pure love. That's what they saw before He ever took on human flesh. He was so majestic that it says those seraphs covered their eyes when they were in His presence. They witnessed that. That was all they knew. But the second thing I want you to see today is so important. As we continue to read in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, we see that one day the angels became witnesses of something else. They saw undimmed glory, the undimmed sun in all of his glory take on veiled glory, covered up glory. When the sun left it all behind to be born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem. And so you see in that passage in Philippians 2, 6 that he was fully God, but he didn't hold on to the advantage of that. But it says he, he made himself Nothing, and he took upon him the form again, being made in the form of human likeness. He, he became fully human as well. Same word. And so, before, there was glory unfiltered. Now, the glory has been filtered. It is filtered through flesh. And so, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, but it's glory that's shielded in flesh. Now there was one time as we were walking on this planet with His disciples that He allowed His glory to break through. Anyone remember where that was? Out of this many people, somebody should remember. Where? The transfiguration, we call it. And so if you go to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, I'm not going to read all of Matthew 17, 1 through 13, but I will read the first few verses. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Do you see that? His face shone like the sun. The sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And so Jesus here lets the glory break through. And on the night before Jesus is crucified in John chapter 17 when he's praying, that wonderful prayer in John chapter 17, he prays for something to happen in relationship to what he's about to do. In John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, Jesus laid aside his glory to come and save us. He veiled his glory in flesh. Now he's been raised and he has the glory that he had before except that humanity has been taken up into it. And that he's still the God-man. And so the angels have seen all of that happen. But on the front end, here's what I, want to, what I want us to see today. On the front end of this, go back to Philippians chapter 2 in verses 6 and 7. 
They saw something from both sides, which we've only seen or heard about from one side. We've only heard and really seen about Jesus as Jesus the man, the human side. They were witnesses to something in a way we have not been. They were eyewitnesses to the greatest act of humility. When the time came for him to take on human flesh, notice again verses 6 through 8, Philippians 2. Those are our key verses. When scholars do try to break this down, it is pretty clear that whether it is a hymn or not, or whether Paul composed it, or incorporated something previously written, these verses really hang together, verses 6 through 8, with sort of a poetic lilt to them. And the central way to describe what is taking place is that the eternal Son, at a point in time, willingly laid aside His glory. He did not hold on to the advantages He had as God. And He went from the highest point to the lowest point in order to do something He desired to do. He went from being served and worshipped continually to being a servant, the lowest form one could take. And then He died the lowest, most debased way one could die on a cross, naked and deemed a criminal, though he was still that same God clothed in flesh. Can can you imagine what the angels must have felt and thought when they saw this unfold? This one they had worshipped since they had been created in all of his majesty and glory. No one to parallel him. They watched him willingly give up his advantages to come here and take upon himself human flesh. They watched This great God humble himself in that way. To become one who was a vulnerable baby. One who would be rejected by men. Cursed, whipped, and crucified. I mean that must have just stopped them in their tracks to see someone who would do that. Because they're not omniscient. They had to witness this take place. Now when you think about humility... Can you say the word humility with me? Humility. Let's say it. Humility. It's not the natural inclination of fallen humanity, is it? It's not our natural inclination. The sinful human race is filled with selfishness, with people wanting to be first, to look better, to be better in their minds, to do what it takes to get ahead. We are not naturally humble. We don't naturally consider others before ourselves. And even after we have been saved and born again and indwelt by Jesus, we still struggle with this in our lives. They were struggling with it at Philippi. That's the context in which Paul wrote this. If you'll go back a few verses before we started in verse 5, you'll see that they were struggling with the idea of humility before one another in this church. And so Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And so, in your relationship with each other, have the mindset of Jesus. And what was it? Humility. They were struggling with it. You can read other places in the letter where they were struggling with being humble. And so, that's why Paul writes this here. In reality, we are imperfect. We fail. You and I have every reason to be humble. We ought to be humble, right? But our natural inclination is not in that way. But it ought to be. 
Any ability that we have to accomplish anything comes from God. And people who achieve things in this life who are wise know that they did not get there all alone, but that they should be humble before the God who gave them the abilities he gave to them. Alex Haley, famous novelist in his own right, wrote the novel Roots that has been produced in movies and plays, very famous work, very accomplished author. He gets it. He says in his office he keeps a a picture of a turtle on a fence post because it reminds him of something. And when people say how great he is and what he's accomplished, what he's written, he's reminded of the turtle on the fence post. And one thing you always know about a turtle on a fence post is what? It did not put itself there. And Alex Haley says, I'm always reminded I'm the turtle on the fence post. And it keeps him humble in that way. Now we're getting down to the very meat of what I want you to hear today. Humility. Can you say that word with me again? Humility. Humility is a relational term. It is something that is done in relationship to others or to some principle. That's why Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look after your own interests, but to the interest of others. It's a relational term. And so then we read about Jesus humbling himself right after that. You see, the eternal Son of God who became Jesus, the God-man incarnate, he had no reason to humble himself, no intrinsic need to ever humble himself. He was all-powerful, perfect in every way, so far above his creation in majesty, wisdom, and power that to humble himself, to empty himself, must have been something that blew the angels away. And so as I thought about this in this context, to whom is Jesus humbling himself? To whom is the Son humbling himself? That he, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. Who did he do that for before? It does not seem to be the Father. In this passage, the Son wants to humble Himself. And on a separate track, it seems as scholars point out, the Father wants to exalt Him. Not to reward Him, but because it's the right thing to do. You cannot do anything else in light of what He has done. But it doesn't seem that He is humbling Himself to the Father here, or to a principle No, in light of what we find in verses 3 through 4 when he says, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interest. And remember, he let go of his interest. But look to the interest of others. It seems to me that Jesus humbled himself to us. The eternal, glorious Son of God humbled himself to us because he desired to save us he put himself low for us he took on flesh as a tender baby he made himself a servant the angels watched all of this take place one they worshiped whose glory made them shield their faces put himself down below us to lift us up isn't that what paul means when he says in second corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 about Jesus, 
he says that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Folks, that ought to humble us. It ought to stop us in our tracks. We should be like Peter. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet on the night he was about to be arrested and he, he gets them there and he has the basin and he kneels down. He's going to wash their feet. And what does Peter say? No way! This is not right! And at a far greater decibel and level, you and I ought to be saying, No way! No way! This is not right! That someone so majestic and glorious who did not have to do this chose to humble himself, to put himself below us, to die for us, that we might be lifted up and have eternal life. So how can we apply what the angel saw? Well, as a believer... The exhortation in Philippians would be to us to live a life of humility like him as we serve him in the world and in the church. Seek always to put others first and die to the cultural message to put yourself first. But also we must put to death, as we said last week, the cultural distortions of the character of God. He is not some ogre. He is not some harsh taskmaster. There is no one to compare to the Son of God made flesh. He's not one who is out to destroy, but he's one who's willing to put himself all the way down in humility to save wretched people like us. And maybe you're here today and you've wandered in here and you're not yet a Christian. You're not yet over the line. I know some of you sneak in on us sometime. We're glad you're here. I hope somebody invited you. Are you not drawn to a Savior like this? Won't you give your life to Him today? Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm not ready to become a Christian because I can't live up to it. Maybe that's you. And if you're being honest and you're not blowing smoke with me, and a lot of excuses I hear from people, I just think you're just blowing smoke. You're not serious about really considering Christ. But if you're being serious in that statement, your answer to the dilemma, I can't live up to it, is right here. He knows you will struggle. He knows you will have to learn and grow. He invites you to start with Him. Trust Him. He is truly one who is humble, who will come walk alongside of you. Perhaps this will help you hear better what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 as we bring this to a close today. And you feel like your life is empty and you're weary and you're worn and you're broken and you just don't know if you trust Jesus, if you can, if you can do it. And he does it for you. He's done all of this to save you. And he says, here's my heart towards you. And I want to walk alongside you. In humility, if you'll just put your hand in my hand and trust me as your Savior. And so Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Read it for me because I can't. Read it out loud. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Open our eyes, Lord, to your goodness and your humility. God, help some hurting heart call upon you right now to be their Savior, to forgive them and to come alongside them as one who is humble, who will walk with them and teach them. You have shown out in a way that blows the angels away. And us too, if we can just open our eyes, Spirit, help us see today. So accomplish all that you want now, Lord, in our hearts. Help us never to be the same again as we think about Christmas and baby Jesus. Help us look beyond it, behind it, to the great Son of God who abased himself for someone like me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.